0: time 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 is a fascinating concept we are very aware of it all day long we have clocks and watches all around us we are reminded of it with our calendars which set aside certain blocks of time for specific things it seems as if mankind is obsessed with time and it is often said that time is our most precious commodity. And when you think about how precious it is, you realize that it is a commodity that everyone has been given a certain amount of. It is a, an economy, uh, a commodity that is spent second by second of each day, no matter what you do. And it, it is a commodity that never will, can be gained back and will one day run out for everyone. Time. Time. One man, uh, some of you have heard me use this illustration before, but it fits here again. One man wanted to solidify his concept of time, so he uh, looked at the average lifespan of a man in the United States, which is about 74 to 78 years old, depending on who you read. He added up how many days he would have left in his life according to that, and he put a bucket on his workbench in his garage and he filled it with a number of marbles for the number of days that he had left according to statistics. And every day he would go out there and he would grab a marble and throw it into the woods. Would that kind of get you focused on how much time you actually have left? I mean, when you have ten marbles left in the bucket, you're kind of thinking about whoa, it would remind you that your time is running out and there is no way to get that time back. Mankind has always been very aware of time, but few of us have ever taken time to consider what time really is. Consider this for a moment. What is time? Have you ever thought about defining it? Define time. This question has been discussed for centuries. Philosophers have had different ways of explaining time, different ways of defining time. Some ancient Indian philosophers viewed time as a wheel. They believed there was a repeating of the ages over the lifespan of the universe, and this led to beliefs like reincarnation. Plato, a Greek philosopher, believed time was made by the Creator at the same time or at the same instance as creation or as the heavens. Aristotle believed time correlated to movement, that time did not exist on its own, but was relative to motion and the object, the motion of those objects. Sean Carroll, a name that most of you probably haven't heard before, is an American theoretical physicist. And he wrote a whole book on time. And he said that the main theme of that book was to discuss the arrow of time. And if I understand his point correctly, he looks at time in a linear fashion with certain irrevocable processes that cannot be changed once they have happened. In fact, time is so much on our hands that, are, that over the years, many songs have been written about it. I think some of you will recognize some of these lyrics. Oh, time is on my side. Yes, it is. Time is on my side. Yes, it is. You are searching for good times, but just wait and see. You'll come what? Running back. You'll come running back. Rolling Stones, the song entitled Time is on My Side. Another turning point, a fork stuck in the road. Time grabs you by the wrist and directs where you go. So make the best of this test and don't ask why. It's not a question, but a lesson learned in time. Something unpredictable, but in the end is right. I hope you've had the time of your life. Song entitled Good Riddance by Green Day. As I was walking down the street one day, a man came up to me and asked me what the time was that was on my watch. And I said, does anybody really know what time it is? Does anybody really care? If so, I can't imagine why. We've all got time enough to cry. Chicago. Chicago. Does anybody know what time it is? I've got one more song I want to bring to your attention, but before I do this, I want everybody to turn this morning to the book of Ecclesiastes. Turn with me, please, to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring one with you, there's the red books in front of you are Bibles, and you can turn to page seven hundred 705. You'll find there Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And this passage is one of the most recognized passages in the entire Bible. It is so well known because of a popular song from the late 50s and early 60s. I wasn't quite born then, just letting you know, okay? or at least I'm old enough to understand this song. As I read the lyrics of this song, I want you to actually track through Saul, uh, Excuse me, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Track through it. I'm going to read the lyrics and you just look at chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes. To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. And a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to reap. A time to kill, a time to heal, a time to laugh, a time to weep. To everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. And a time for every purpose under heaven. A time to build up, a time to break down. A time to dance, a time to mourn. A time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones. To everything, turn, turn, turn. A time of love, a time of hate. A time of war, a time of peace. A time you may embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. To everything, Turn, turn, turn. A time to gain, a time to lose, a time to rend, a time to sow, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for peace. I swear it's not too late. Turn, turn, turn. The birds made that song popular back, it was actually before their time, but they're the ones that made it internationally popular in 1965. Did you notice that this song was almost the word-for-word quoting of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1-8? through 8? Almost word for word. The easiest song that was ever written because it was written in the Bible thousands of years before they ever made it popular. And many people, how many of you just recognized that song or those words? Yeah, many of us did because it was popular back in the 60s. Even though this song didn't portray an accurate context of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, it did get one major point right. Time just keeps going and going, and going. This song spoke to the hearts of those living in a very tumultuous time and made it to the number one of the Billboard Hot 100. And throughout the years, this song has caught mankind's attention because it speaks to the issue of time and our relation to time as human beings. Have you ever considered questions like, what is the purpose of time? How should we react to the reality of time? Well, Solomon, the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, helps us think through these questions. And he is intent on helping us consider time in the way most people have not really ever looked at time. He wants to take our minds off of our calendars that split up our days into small blocks of time and lead us to consider time in a way that draws our attention to the creator of time, God. He wants to help us think through how we can live wisely in this world while time just turns, turns, turns. And he begins this by describing the reality of our lives, describing the reality of our lives in relationship to time. Let's take a look at Ephesians, excuse me, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. This is Solomon's main point for the first eight verses. And what I find very interesting is Solomon is just making a matter-of-fact statement. Everything is under time's control. Nothing in this world escapes time's control. Everything has a season, and nothing can change that. There is a time set for every activity under heaven. And think about what that means. Think about what that means. Since the beginning of God's creative event, everything under heaven has a season and a set time, that cannot be changed by anything you do. It cannot be changed by human effort. Everything has a time, everything has a season, and we are all locked into it. And he goes on to explain in the next uh, number of verses, what does he mean by that? Take a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse. look at verse 2. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. Every person here, we see in verse 2, has two appointed appointments in their lives that they did not make, they cannot change, and they absolutely had no control of. Did you ever think about that? The first appointment was our birth. We didn't set that appointment, but we all had it. We couldn't control that appointment. We couldn't reschedule it or modify it. It was set, the day of our birth. The second appointment It is our death. And just like that first appointment, we didn't make it. We can't modify it. We can't cancel it. It has already been set, and we will be there at the scheduled time no matter what we do. The time of our death. In fact, the the psalmist in Psalm 139 helps uh, clear this up or helps us to understand this. It says in Psalm 139, verse 16, Your eyes, God's eyes, saw my unformed substance in your book were written, Every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Who sets the time of your death? Who sets that appointment of your death before you're ever born? And we see, again, we see in verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die, and there is nothing that any of us can ever do to change that. The second part there of verse 2, farmers and gardeners know this. A time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted. Do they get to choose the season that they plant? Nope. They must plant at the right season. If they don't plant at the proper time, they're wasting their time. You can't plant seeds in the middle of December. True? You have to do what? Who controls that time? If you don't harvest at the proper time, You've wasted your time because it's set. You have no control. As we move on to verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. The first part of that, it says a time to kill and a time to heal. My son, most of you know, is a police officer, and he understands this very, very well. There are times when he sees a child in distress and he goes to that child brings safety and security into their lives he gives them a hug and heals their fear but he also knows there may be a time he has to kill because others are trying to kill him or somebody else fortunately he has not had to deal with that time yet but there is a time to kill and there is a time to heal and that's set the second half of verse three A time to break down and a time to build up. And builders know this very well. They often must decide if it's time to tear a building down and start over or if it's time to repair the building. A time to build and a time to tear down. In verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Basically what Solomon is saying, there are specific times for all of our emotions. And we usually don't have control over the situations that cause them, do we? Our emotions are even controlled by time. We don't schedule a time to laugh at every Monday at 2 p.m. Every Monday at 2 p.m., I'm going to laugh. It doesn't work that way. Time controls when we're going to laugh. We don't plan to cry or mourn every other Wednesday evening at 5 p.m. Why? Because it's not something we control. Time controls. Even... These times for emotions are set by time. And then we start in verse 5. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Think about war and peace for just a minute. Can nations plan for war and peace? Can a nation say, we'll schedule to live in peace for the next five years? And then the next three years after that, we'll schedule for war. What schedules war and peace? Time. Time. Throughout this poem, Solomon makes it clear that everything is under time's control. Nothing in this world has a season and nothing escapes the uh, time's control. Everything has a season and nothing can change that. There's a set time for every activity under heaven. And this poem covers all human emotions, good and bad. All human activities, good and bad. All, human, uh, all of human life, good and bad. And makes the point that time does what? Controls them all. There are undeniable seasons of life that come and go in our lives. And we all know that. We just never stop to what? Take the time to think about it. There are activities attached to these seasons, and there's nothing, again, that we can do to control or change them. And when we take a step back and look at the big picture, we, become often, we often become very, very overwhelmed when we realize, think about this. Think about time. Think about you and your relationship to time. In light of the whole time, uh, uh, the whole of time, in light of from creation till now, and all the time that's passed in there, what significance is there in your life? How much of your life makes up time when you take the whole of time? James makes it very clear for us. In James chapter 4, verses 1 through uh, verse 14. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are What? A mist that appears for a little while, a little time, and then what? Vanishes. This is the reality of our lives in light of the time that Solomon opens our eyes to. In light of that reality, we must live each and every day. And we are often just not uh, conscious of that reality. We are stuck in time. We are controlled by time. Our activities are controlled by time. And we are going to live and die within time and have no control of it. And in the whole realm of time, it is very. Our, we don't even show up as a dot on that timeline. And so with this reality set in place, we get to chapter 3, verse 9. And he says, what gain has the worker from his toil? What gain has a worker from his toil? In other words, what do we gain from our work? What do we gain from our time of toil on this planet? What is our, as I said on Wednesday night a couple weeks ago, what is our return on investment? And his implied answer in light of the poem is, Is something that shakes us to our very core. What do we gain? And here is the truth. Here is the reality of the matter. What do we gain in this time? And the answer is nothing. There is no net gain. What do we gain from our work? Our toil? Nothing. A baby is born and what? Someone else dies. You laugh today and you will... Cry tomorrow. You buy something today and you throw something out. When? Next week. There is no net gain in life. You came into this world with nothing and you will leave this world with what? Nothing. What gain is there in all of your toil? In your very, very short vapor-like time on this earth? Nothing. We gain nothing in all of our toils. Have you ever stopped to really just consider time like this? It marches on without regard for you and your life. For me and my life, it is unalterable. But we honestly need to think about time like this. It is the reality of our lives, and we aren't doing ourselves any favor if we just ignore this reality i believe it was solomon's plan to bring us to a point of despair to a point of feeling helpless a point he makes over and over and over in ecclesiastes he says i want you to understand something your net gain on this planet of their toil is absolutely nothing and he refers to it like this over and over ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 2 vanity of vanities says the preacher vanity vanities what does it say all is vanity. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 11. When I consider all that my hands had done and the toil I expected expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and the striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. All is vanity. Ecclesiastes 1.14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Solomon is saying we need to stop what we're doing, stop in our process of time, stop looking at our calendars and understand that our toil is vain. There is no net gain out of all of this. All of our work, all of our accomplishments are worthless, and the marching on of time is a big part of why that is true. Why does Solomon want to bring us to this place of despair? Because he wants to shatter our confidence in what this world has to offer and direct our hearts and minds to the one who created time itself, to the one who controls and directs time. He wants us to see and understand that God is the one who is in control. You are not. And the only way that we will ever come to that point, the only way we will ever come to that conclusion is when we understand that time is in control. We have nothing that we can change in it, and our day of our death and what we accomplish, both good and bad, is set in time, and then it ends very quickly. And Solomon says, I want to shake you out of that, and I want to show you and introduce you to somebody who is actually in control of time itself. God is the one who is in control. And we see that in verses 9 through 15. Let's just read a couple of those and then we'll walk through them. Let's start in verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. We need to understand something that up to this point in time in our passage that Solomon has never once mentioned God in this whole idea of time. But in the next six verses, God is referred to nine times. You think he's making a point? He goes, I have brought you to a place where you understand where you, st- uh, where you stand in relationship to time and that there is no net gain in your toil. And now he says, I'm going to switch you from that point, from that despair, to a person that I want you to understand very intimately, and this is God. And he says, I'm going to tell you about God nine times. Why does Solomon want to direct our minds towards God? Because God is responsible for all of this. He is the one who has given man the business of life. Look at verse 10. I have seen the business that God gives to the children of man to be busy with. He is the one who controls time in an appropriate manner. Look at verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has given man the business of life, and he has done it in a way that all the pieces fit together beautifully. God has also created mankind with the ability to instinctively know there is something bigger in this life, a sense of eternity. We see that in the last part of verse 11. And this is what sets us apart from the animals, an awareness of eternity. An awareness of eternity. This is why no matter what we accomplish in the end, there is a sense of incompleteness, a sense of dissatisfaction, because ultimately we know deep inside there is a bigger purpose for our lives than what we accomplish where. Here in time. There is something out there that is significantly more important, significantly more glorious than what we accomplish here in this time. Solomon is leading us to see there is no way for this life to make sense if God is taken out of the equation. No scientific discovery no scientific theory, no deep philosophical proposal can explain the purpose of this world. Mankind throughout the centuries has endeavored to make sense of this world without God, without, uh, to make sense of time without God, and he has always fallen short into explaining what or what God has planned in the end. We always come short. We can't put all the pieces together, can we? We look around and we see all these things going on in time. We see all the things going on in the world that is controlled by time. And sometimes it seems fragmented and we don't understand why there's good and bad. We don't understand why this has happened. We don't know why Ukraine is uh, fighting against Russia. We don't know all of this, but who does? God. And who is? And he says he's going to make all things what? Beautiful when? In its time. And there is no possible way that we are going to be able to figure it out beforehand. Solomon wants us to grasp that as life moves on, as time moves us along, as we toil and work day in and day out with no real net gain, there is still real purpose to this life because God is in control. He is sovereign and in his providential control over over time, there is a real purpose to every minute of our lives, even though we can't figure it out right now. Keep your fingers in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and turn with me for a minute over to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the last chapter of Ecclesiastes. And Solomon sums all this up. I want you to look first again at Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 8. As he comes to the end, he says what? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Any debate on that now? How many of you think that that is not true? Think about it. If we really look deep in our hearts, we know that's true. That all the toil we do is really worthless. It's vanity. But then, it becomes worthwhile when you look at verse 13, chapter 12. The end of the matter, when this has all been heard, when everything I look around and see is vanity, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will, what? Bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Who makes life worthwhile? God, because he puts everything together in his time, in his way. And we find out, going back to chapter 3, that it will be, what? Beautiful. Reflect for a minute on what it means for God to be providentially in control. In other words, what are God's works of providence? This is a major theological doctrine that we see throughout the Bible. What are God's works of providence? They are the holy, wise, and powerful acts that God preserves and governs all His creatures and their their actions by. It is God's holy, wise, and powerful acts that He governs all His creatures and their actions by. That is what is meant by God's providence. There is nothing in the realm of time that God doesn't, minutely govern grasp what is being said here about the immensity of God there is nothing down to the minutest detail of all of time that God does not control and have control of we find it in the Bible just a couple of examples he he governs each death of each sparrow he governs each particle of sand on the beach. He even governs the hair on our heads. God is minutely in control of every aspect of His creation, every activity of His creation. He governs it for His glory and our good. And we are familiar with this, a very familiar passage to many of us in Romans 8.28, and we know what does that mean. We know. It's a settled fact. We don't know how time works, really. We're such a, a short little speck on the timeline of the universe. There's a whole lot there we don't know, but we do know this, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Everything you experience, everything you're going through, every struggle, good and bad, every time you laugh, every time you weep, everything in your life, back to the poem, Okay, we know that God is working together for our good, for His glory, because He is God. It is this realization that there is a bigger purpose to life, a purpose that is infinitely more grand than we can ever imagine, that gives our lives purpose and meaning. It is God's sovereign, providential control over time that gives us confidence that our toil and work can really have a return on investment. Because if we remove God from the equation, it is worthless. What is the result of knowing that that God is over time? What is the result of knowing that God is over time? And that we're not just stuck in toil to the end with no real meaning. The result is a whole new perspective on life. And we see that in verses 12 through 13. Look at verses 12 through 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is a gift, God's gift to man. We do not have to despair that there is no meaning to life. When God is placed in the proper place of life's equation, then our toil becomes a pleasure because God has given Himself as a gift to man. You know what makes life worthwhile? God has revealed Himself to us. If we didn't know God existed, if God did not reveal Himself to us, and that He is over control of that whole idea of time, our lives would be full of despair. We would look at life as vanity, vanity, because we understand that we work so hard through all of our lives, and at the end we die and somebody else gets what we did. If you take God out of the equation, there's no purpose in life. God has given us Himself as the gift. We can't understand what's going on in time. We don't understand everything that God is doing, but we understand who God is. And He's given us Himself. He's revealed to us himself to us and we can look at him and say i trust you and i can rest in that even though i don't understand all of what's going on in my life all that you have going on in time god has revealed through solomon that he brings purpose and meaning to life and there is nothing better for us to do than to be joyful and to be and to do good in this life because god himself is in control of every detail God brings purpose to life and time. When we, remove God, and when we remove God from the equation, life loses its purpose. And that is a whole new perspective. God says, because you know me, because you know I exist, because you know how powerful I am and that I control time, enjoy the pleasures that I have given you. Enjoy the life that I have provided for you because through me, there is purpose in your toil. There is purpose in what you do, even when you can't see it. We know what the result is in this life when God is in his place, when it's in the right, when he's in the right part of the equation. We have a whole new perspective on life. Our life takes on meaning. But what is God's ultimate purpose for revealing this to us through Solomon? What is God's ultimate purpose for revealing himself to us and making our life worthwhile? Why did God want us to know about time in this manner through Solomon? We find the answer in verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Is anybody going to change what God does? Ever. It's not moving anywhere. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken away from it. So how does that affect your life? You can't add a single second to your life. You can't add a single second to your laughter or to your mourning or to your despair or to your building up. Or Who's controlling all that? God is. He says there, nothing can be added to it, nothing can be taken. God has what? Done it so that people fear before Him. What is God's ultimate purpose for revealing this to us through Solomon. God has revealed we are locked in time and have no control of our lives because He wants us to know this so that we will fear Him. Have you ever thought about that? He wants us to fear Him. Think about a being so immense, so powerful that he can actually create and control every second of everybody's time. Does that just blow your mind? And if we were to come into the presence of this being, what do you think would happen? Do you think we'd be flippant? Or we'd stand in absolute awe and fear of some being being so immense that he's outside of time itself? Because he can't control time if he's in it. You see, God says, I'm revealing this to you. I want you to understand your relationship to time. I want you to understand that I bring meaning to your life. But the main purpose that I want you to know this is so you understand who I am and you come to a point where you fear me. You come to a point where you fear me. God calls people to fear Him because they get a glimpse of who He is, the one who controls time itself and one who gives meaning to every second of time. Over and over, the Bible calls people to fear God. We don't hear much about this today because fearing God humbles us. And we have to admit that our life is not in our hands, but in the hands of the one who controls time itself. And that bothers us. But the fear of the Lord is beneficial to us. Because it keeps our lives rightly focused on God. When we understand that this person, this God, is controlling all of our lives, controls every second of our time, who are we looking to to find out what's going on? Him. And not to our own understanding of what's going on. He's the one who sees the whole thing, and we see how much of it in our little bitty time of life. Very, very little. And that fear is a healthy fear. Because look at what it says in Proverbs three times. Actually more, but three that I'm using here. The fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Is the fear of God a good thing here? It's the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. In other words, without the knowledge of God, there is no insight to life. And then you have Proverbs ten twenty seven: the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Is the fear of God here a positive thing? Absolutely. How many of you want to have your life prolonged? Then we see in Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Again, we see that the fear of the Lord, the fear of God here is a good thing. It is a benefit to our lives. To know God, to grasp that He controls time, itself leads us to fear him as a being who is incomprehensible but this fear brings a benefit to our lives because that fear causes us to order our lives in light of God's purposes and plans and not our own but because of sin we don't naturally fear God We remove him from life's equation and live as if he isn't there, day in and day out. We just go through our emotions, we just go through our jobs, we just go through our lives, we go through our hobbies, and we never acknowledge the time that God is actually controlling everything that we do on any given day. And without God in our day, what I'm doing is nothing and is worth nothing. Fear leads us to look at this and say, I need to live according to the will and purposes of the God who controls time. When we see ourselves as God of our lives, this rebellion will eventually lead us to stand before God in judgment. When we take God out of the equation and live each day in and out and order our lives around what we think should happen and how we think it should be, And we take God out of the equation, we take God out of our decision making, we take God out of our daily lives, because He just doesn't exist, as many people out there believe today. There will be a judgment at the end. There will be a judgment at the end. But in God's providential plan, He orchestrated specific events in our time. Think about this. He orchestrated very specific events in our time to provide a way for us to overcome our sin through His Son, Jesus Christ. God orchestrated time to provide a Savior for us when we could not have a relationship with God because of our sin, when we did not want to acknowledge that God was in control, when we did not want to have God control our time and we wanted to be our own gods, God says, I love you, I care for you, I am gracious and merciful towards you. I am going to arrange all of time from the beginning of creation to the time that we find ourselves right now to the time when Jesus Christ died. He says, I'm going to orchestrate it all to make sure that a Savior can come. And think about what had to be orchestrated for Jesus Christ to die on the cross. Rome had to be in power. And Rome had to conquer all of the known world at that point in time. Think of all the minute details, all the empires that had grown and all the empires that had fallen, all the storms on the seas, everything, everything in time came to a specific point in time so that Jesus Christ, it was ordered in a way so that Jesus Christ could come and die for us. Mary had to be a certain age. Joseph had to be there. Elizabeth and Zechariah had to be at a certain place at a certain time. Zachariah had to be in the temple chosen by lottery to stand before the altar of incense to do what his priestly duty was. He had to be there at that exact time so that the angel could come down and say what? Oh, by the way, you're old wife is going to have a child all of that had to be orchestrated by God and you go how do you know this well let's take a look at Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5 but when the fullness of time had come what does that mean everything was fulfilled that God had in his timeline God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law all those things had to be true to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons In the fullness of time. And who made that happen? God. In the fullness of time, in God's providential control over time, God sent His Son, Jesus, into the world to provide a way for us to be saved from our sins so that we could live within our time on this earth, acknowledging and worshiping God who rules over time. You live. Your heart beats. You breathe so that you can acknowledge and worship the One who saved you and it's proven that He saved you and proven that He had the ability to do it because He is bigger than time itself. No government, no person, no natural disaster could change God's plan. In fact, every single one of those things and millions and millions of other things, multitudes of things that we can't even comprehend, were used by God to prepare for the time when Jesus Christ would hang on the cross and die for us. A God who rules that sovereign over time is a God who should be worshipped by every single human being who walks this planet. God rules this way according to our text so that we will come to fear Him, so that we will come to honor Him as God. And as we have seen, that fear is a very, very beneficial thing for each of our lives. So let me ask you this question. Do you fear God? Do you really fear God? When you look at, the, that, the, at what we have seen this morning and what it would take for a being to control and create time and every aspect of time down to the very, very minutia of sand on a beach, do you fear that person? Do you fear that God that you order your life around that person because you understand who he is? Do you really fear God? It is only when you come to fear God that you come to a place where you can really worship him or acknowledge that you even need him. In light of what Solomon says about time, every person here this morning is here because God, the God who created time, caused you to be here. You are sitting here this morning because of whom? Because God ordained it in His timeline. But you did all that. You chose, I mean, from our perspective, we chose to do all that, right? But in the grand scheme of things, we understand from this poem, we understand from. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verses 1 through 15 that you are here because you are part of God's what? You're part of God's timeline to be here this morning at this minute, at this point in time. Do you have a sense here this morning that what you are doing, what we are doing we are doing before this God who is sovereign over time? If you don't fear God, if you don't revere Him Why not? We all know this is true to some extent in our hearts, don't we? If anybody, if any human being would just sit back and look at time and define time and understand what time is, they have to come to a point where they say, there's something out there that I don't understand. All of us know in the deepest part of our being that when we look at what we looked at this morning is true. We all know that time keeps rolling on, carrying us along, and that we are helpless to do anything about it. But the one who controls time, who gives us breath, who keeps our hearts beating, and is to be feared by believers and unbelievers, he gives this life purpose and meaning. Believers fear Him not because we are His enemies any longer, but because we know who He is, the Holy Sovereign Lord that leads us to worship Him with all of our lives because He has opened our eyes to the fact that He is a sovereign, providential God. And we fear Him not because we're His enemy, but we fear Him because of who He is. Don't ever think, don't ever think that you're going to come up to God and give Him five. Not going to happen. When we stand before this holy God, this infinite God, this God who controls and created time, we are going to feel undone. And we're going to fall to our faces and pray that we live. Even when we're saved. And we see this to be true in Revelation. The Apostle John was saved. There is absolutely no doubt about that, true? And when he came face to face with the living, glorified Christ in His deity, in His Shekinah glory, a man who had served God and been with Jesus Christ for all of His ministry and served God, he was well into his 80s at this point in time, when he came face to face with the one that loved him, the one who had had leaned on his bosom, And he came face to face with that God. What did he do? Fell down as one that was dead. He didn't come and lean on his bosom again. Because he saw who God was. In his glory and his holiness. Unbelievers need to fear him. Because of who he is. Just because they have chosen to ignore his existence... To take him out of the equation doesn't mean he doesn't exist. If you were here this morning and you have recognized that you really have taken God out of the equation, that you have uh, this idea that you're God of your life, that you control your life, you control your destiny, if you find yourself in that position, I want to be very, very clear to you. Know that you will stand before God, this God who is sovereign even over time one day in judgment. You will stand before him in judgment. And you won't argue with Him. You won't debate with Him. You will fall before Him and call Him Lord. But this God that will judge you, if you removed Him from your equation, but this God is a God of love and mercy, and that is why in the fullness of time He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you He provided a way to save you from your sins so that he can come back into the equation of your life as your God and Savior instead of the God who will judge you. I pray that Solomon's reflections on time this morning has helped all of us see the God of the universe in a new light. I pray God has used Solomon's reflection on time to help you grow in your understanding of his sovereign and providential care and control. I pray that what we have learned about time and seen from a bigger perspective has caused you to want to bow your knee to the sovereign, providential God every moment of every day. Because He's the only person that brings meaning to your life. And if God has revealed to you this morning that you're still either living like you're the God of your life or has revealed to you that you really see yourself as the God of your life, if you want that to change, then there is a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. And belief in Him can bring you back to a point where God is in your equation and your life can have immense meaning. And I would love to show you how that can happen. I would love to show you more about my Savior, Jesus Christ. I would like to help you understand how this man, who is God in the flesh, can utterly change the purpose for why you live on this planet. I pray and ask that you would give me the opportunity to do that. If you understand right now that this God is somebody that you don't know, don't stay there. Don't stay there. Come and talk to me. Come and talk to one of the deacons. Come and talk to Tammy. Talk to somebody so that we can introduce you to the God who controls time. And we can introduce you through his, to him through his son, Jesus Christ.